Todd Philpott, Senior Research Associate at the Center for a Livable Future at Johns Hopkins, and this is the Prairie Farm Podcast. I'm Doug Duran, a landowner trying to be a conservationist. I'm Tabitha Panis, president of the Iowa Prairie Network. I'm Ryan Callahan, director of conservation at Meat Eater. Angela from X and Root Homestead. Chris Helzer, the Nebraska director of science for the Nature Conservancy. Judd McCollum from Working Class Bowhunter. Taylor Keene, founder of Sacred Seed. Ryan Bryson of Bryson Wildlife. This is Luke Fritch. This is James Holtz. Joy Van Weingarten. Sam Sobel. Phil Ebert. Julie Meachin. And you are listening to the Prairie Farm. The Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm Podcast. Prairie Farm Podcast. Welcome to the Prairie Farm Podcast. Well, normally I or Kent will come up with a pretty cool intro and tell some story about uh, about our past and connect it and make it very human. And, and we plan on continuing to do that. So uh, I hope you guys don't hate those. But uh, I was thinking about this with our guest today. And there's just nothing. He He's just... he discovering them was so out of left field and intrigued me so strongly. I want you guys to have that same experience I did. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I want to introduce you Tom Philpot from John Hopkins University. Tom, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So Tom, did I say your last name correct? Philpot? Yes. Yes, that's correct. Good. I didn't know if it was like French because Kent pronounced his last name Boucher, but I met another guy who it was uh boucher and then can you found a different one yeah my so my name has a whole long story for how it's thoroughly butchered but i'll I'll spare tom that but yeah and ironically that's what my last name means is is butcher and right okay uh, so boucher is how we say it in the americanized version but the french canadian way of course was boucher Right. And then I heard the other day that there was another guy who lives up in New England who pronounces it bushy. Okay. Wow. <laughs> Which is <laughs> just one of my favorite things. I need to just start calling you bushy for now. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. But the, I ran, I ran across Tom's work um, when I was reading a book, you guys have heard us talk about it, the, the swine Republic and, and you did a forward for it. And I was like, man, this guy's a great writer. So I just looked him up, read a bunch of his articles. I have not, I've ordered your book. I have not read it because I just discovered you last week, but I am excited to do it. Listen to a couple of podcasts. And as I was perusing through the things, I was like, oh, this guy, like he, he, he has a strong voice in it and has really good thoughts. And, but probably my favorite thing was that when you were communicating what you were wanting to communicate, it was very human is very personable. You were obviously very intelligent, but you weren't writing above what anyone could understand. And, and it was wonderful. So I reached out and he was gracious enough to, uh, to join us. But so people just heard in the intro that you're with John Hopkins, uh, center for livable future. That, that is a wild name. What, what is that? Yeah, it it is a really interesting group. So it is a, um, kind of a think tank in that, it's an so it's within the academic world. It's you know within the public health school, school of public health, at Hopkins, and um, and it's sort of a think tank that sort of gathers and publicizes research about factory animal farming, about sort of industrial wow. livestock farming. That's really the main focus of the organization, and um, you know it's got kind of an interesting history. It was started by this guy named. Um, 
uh gosh let me, let me think of his name hold on a second um but i'm sorry let me take that again it was started by again a guy named bob lawrence who it was you know he's an md he's retired now and he was an, um, a medical doctor in low-income areas of north carolina and a couple of other places and he realized that a lot of the the problems that he was seeing were based on sort of low quality diets. Mm. And, you know, he started thinking about the American food system and the sort of way that most food is provided in the United States, the way that most people eat in the United States um, is really causing these public health crises. And, um, and then he started doing international work. And I think he worked for like maybe the world bank, a couple of organizations like that working in the global global south and he was seeing very similar things like when um when people in the global south would switch from a traditional diet to a more western diet these diet related diseases would would start cropping up things like diabetes um high blood pressure this whole suite of uh, of diet related diseases that are so rampant in our society um and um, and so from that insight, he, um, you know, just, uh, you know, ended up at the School for Public Health at Johns Hopkins, which is really famous, and um, got some funding and decided to launch this this um, this sort of think tank um, that was sort of looking at the food system critically as a public health from, from a public health perspective, and it sort of evolved into thinking about you know, basically meat and dairy production, meat, dairy, egg production as the sort of center of the food system and, and the sort of source mm. of, of a lot of the dysfunction in the food system uh, coming from those uh, from those places. And um, and so at 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 the center, we we have several professors who are professors of public health in, at Hopkins who do incredible research on things like overuse of antibiotics in livestock production um in things like the generation uh and so you know obviously overuse of antibiotics in livestock production gives rise to antibiotic resistant bacteria which is a huge public health problem Mm. um and you know they've done some just key research just drawing the link between giving these animals and you guys are in iowa these you know, giant mm. hog farms that you probably see a lot of and smell a lot of um, yeah. around the state, they're, you know, routinely dosing them with small quantities of antibiotics that develop these, you know, these pathogens evolve to resist those antibiotics. And so when they come to us and make us sick, the antibiotics don't work anymore. And it's, it's causing this huge public health crisis. Um, and so that's that's the sort of research that they do. And, you know, these are academic scientists publishing papers. And um, and someone like me, I was a journalist for 25 years covering food politics for about 15 of those. And so I'm kind of like um, continuing to do journalism in a way, but from, you know, using the resources of the center, using, you know, being able to be involved with these scientists. Um, and, and, you know, and publicize their findings and do, you know, really informed critiques of the sort of industrial meat system. And in fact, we're launching a podcast um, oh, probably awesome. sometime in the early fall, and it's going to be called Unconfined, and it's going to be just sort of conversations about industrial meat production and alternatives to it. 
Oh man, that so cool. sounds like an awesome. Cool. Conversation. Everyone should look for it. It's, you know, sometime September, October, sometime in that period. Cool. We'll we'll send it to us, and we can uh, we can post it on social media as well. And that's uh, great. That's a great yeah. name, by the way. I'm, I always get a little bit uh, envious of people who come up with uh, really good names. And it's just like, it, man, it, it, it took us a while. There was some back and forth. But, um, well, yeah, because some people yeah. hundreds of years ago decided voucher was just a solid way to go, and not. <laughs> Man, yeah. I, so when you got involved there, did they kind of poach you from where you were before? They had read your stuff and decided you were a good fit, or pretty much. I mean, it was a combination of um, of a little bit of that and a little bit of you know when. So I wrote my book that you just mentioned, Perilous Bounty, um, and it came out in 2020, and it, it, it mm-hmm. was a it was a rough slog to finish that book. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever written a book. Um, it's uh, it's it's no day at the at the park. Let me tell you. No, it is not. And by the time that was over, I was like, okay, I'm ready to get out of the daily grind of journalism and you know use these skills and, and stuff I have in some kind of different way where I'm not con- kind of constantly under deadline. Mm-hmm. And th- that was my thinking. And then my book came out in August of 2020. The pandemic was well upon us. Um, and I got I got reinvigorated about reporting and did a lot of reporting about the the pandemic and its effect on you know meatpacking workers and mm-hmm. other impacts of the pandemic um, and kind of just sort of forgot that plan and just stayed at Mother Jones where I had been since 2011. Um, and then when 2022 rolled around, I took a deep breath and was like, okay, I really am actually burned out. And so let me uh, you know I did I need a a, a different um, um, you know kind of job and around that time i started talking to the people at the center and that's that's how it um it all came together man so where because you're looking into like really systemic things i mean nuts and bolts of the nuts and bolts right we see symptoms the symptoms we see every day is how what is the price of food um what is our health care bill what is our, um, like, how good are we feeling in the morning? And you're going all the way back to, I read an article where you were talking about uh, uh, a giant chicken farm and how one of those chicken farms decided that they were going to um, not put a certain antibiotic in the in the chicks, right? Yeah, stuff like that. I have written how, about stuff like that. How do, you, how do you get there? How do you figure out, because, I mean, I know there's not, a lot of the issue is we don't know perfect cause and effect. We just kind of understand like have high correlations, like when something's really related, like, oh, in this area, they have this kind of meat and they also have a ton of diabetes or, you know, a lot of heart issues. So let's look at the meat or um, but how, how do you follow those trails? I mean, so I started to, um, you know, basically my 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 backstory was that um, I was a finance writer in New York City. Um, in the late nineties and early two thousands and ended up um, getting sick of writing about finance and moving to a farm in North Carolina to make a long story short. And I, um, I lived in this farm, this kind of small rural farm, you know, in a rural area in North Carolina, it was a mixed vegetable and fruit farm. I'm, I'm sorry, mixed vegetable and, and meat farm. Um, and, um, and I worked there for four or five years and just sort of started to apply started thinking really seriously about the food system and um, 
started to apply some of the things that I had learned as a financial journalist at looking at the food system while also having, you know, two feet on the ground, you know, working as a farmer. Um, and, um, and just started developing connections, reading a lot, um, reading books, uh, reading the farm trade press. There is so much great stuff in the farm trade press. If you know what mm. to look for, um, you know, in the farm trade press, like they're not, um, you know, they're not speaking to the public. They're sort of speaking to each other. So if there's, um, mm. you know, like I remember some years ago in Iowa, there was this really disgusting problem of that, that um, in the in So the way that um, hog farms work in North Carolina, and I'm sorry, in Iowa is they, um, you'll have this giant hog farm with, you know, hundreds of, of hogs in one building. And the, there's the, the ground is slats and the manure just falls through the slats into this um, containment um, below. And they were having this crazy, um, problem where these manure pits were developing foam that was rising up and coming into the barn and oh. causing all kinds of problems and um and just horrifying um horrifying the farmers sometimes i think there were a couple of deaths from fumes from this stuff because you know what happens is it it creates this sort of crust this is really disgusting stuff i'm sorry but it creates this crust no, that's part of the, it's and, part of describing the problem and if the crust breaks in a certain way, it can cause an explosion of gas because there's these gases trapped under it. And wow. so I think a, farm, a couple of farmers died. And this was not something you were re that you're reading about in the Des Moines Register. They, they weren't sort of publish, uh, publicizing it. But the trade press was full of these stories. Like, wow. oh my God, this farm in this county, and then it happened in that county. And I think it, um, I think it turned out to be that because of the ethanol boom so this would have been probably like late 2000s 2007 yeah, 2007, yeah, yeah. yeah. and they were feeding uh, suddenly feeding so many distillers grains into into pig operations and it was causing this chemical change and i, I think they figured out something to add to the manure but um it's a classic example of you know suddenly i'm writing about this in mother jones and people are going like, well, of course, I would always cite my sources, but I would get questions like, you know, how do you keep up with that? And it's simply just, um, you know, following the farm press, like reading, you know, yeah, you can go online and, and, and Google and you'll find these publications that just, you know, it's a yeah. trade. It's a trade. And so they're covering that trade and um, you get really interesting stories. And if you, you know, you, you have to go into it humbly, like, you know, if you look at stories I did about that. Uh, manure foam I, you know i'm always talking to someone some extension agent like i'm not acting like i fully understand what the hell is going on like yeah i don't know why there's this foam, but i just thought it was real interesting that it was that it was happening and so as a journalist you, you know you you hear about something like this but then you have to do original reporting you have to you know call up the university of minnesota ag extension agent who just did a paper on it and get him to explain it to you and so, you know, that's kind of what you do as a journalist. Um, but to get those story ideas, you have to sort of keep your ear to the ground on the yeah. press. And you then, know, you know, you also go to conferences and talk to people and meet people yeah. that way and hear stories. Yeah. What I'm what I'm hearing is uh, you got to keep learning and keep reading. And yeah. uh, that's, a, that's a big deal. I know that's a little bit more life lesson. But folks, if we want to know. If we if we want to make change, we have to know what change to make. And if we need if we 
gonna know what change to make. We gotta we gotta stay edu- educating ourselves. We can't just be educated as a past tense. We gotta we gotta stay on top of these things. And uh, while you were talking about it, any chance you have a connection at the Iowa Pork Production Association? Because I've reached out a few times about Iowa water, and no one wants to talk to me. I'm trying to do um, a, a series on it. No, I mean, you know, I've, I've had the same problem in trying to talk to those groups. Um, there, I guess there would also be the Iowa pork producers. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, they, I have had pretty good luck with them in the past. Okay. Well, I'll need to, I'll need to check them out. Cause we're, we're doing a fun one on water and, and, uh, I think it would just be really unfair to get people like Chris Jones and some of these other guys that are really, um, really strong voices and I, I think rightfully so but then not also have the other side yeah yeah that'd be kind of but so one of the things that i thought was really cool when i was um going through some of your stuff was uh, uh i listened to this podcast that was on the bbc like world news or uh world business news or something like that about um, big ag, but very specifically, um, bear oat buying, um, Monsanto and, uh, you, you gave your, your thoughts on it, but I am curious, uh, cause I haven't, what was that two years ago now? Um, more like 2018, 28. Oh, it was like the, five years the, ago. Okay. I think the deal closed in 20, I think it closed in 2018. Um, okay. but don't, um, don't hold me to there that. There was a pretty lengthy review, wasn't there? Um, before yeah, it was allowed to go through. Exactly. Yeah, it took yeah, those kinds of huge deals take a, a year or two. To, um, well, I mean, they have like twenty five percent, or at the time they were going to have twenty five percent market share on like pesticides and um, seed. Um, yeah, and actually, a USDA report just came out. I was just reading it yesterday. I think um, look just looking at the U.S. case, and um, you know, like basically bear and syngenta i believe it says well there's also corteva which is the mm-hmm. former dow and dupont um but between those three companies two companies have like more than 70 percent of corn seeds and more than 70 percent of soy- soybean seeds so mm. like iowa and and bear is definitely one of them i think it might be syngenta for one and corteva for mm-hmm. the other for uh, corn and soy um mm. but yeah the the consolidation is just uh, jaw-dropping so uh what's your honest opinion do you think those that consolidation was good for farming and good for america mm, no i don't um i think it just continues to concentrate power mm. and um like you know right around probably just before this deal went down um these lawsuits against monsanto started to come up about um the potential cancer-causing nature of glyphosate of a, yeah. a roundup weed killer yeah and um and i i think that it definitely turned out that um that combining those two companies and having you know the enormous resources because you know monsanto is a pure basically a pure play agriculture company but bear is a, a diversified chemical company that mm-hmm. has a big agricultural part um like arm but it's like this way bigger company is it, it, it was yeah. a way bigger company than monsanto and so it just had the resources to weather those lawsuits it lost a bunch of those lawsuits it had to pay out a bunch of money 
but then it just continues on doing what it's doing. Yeah. And, I, and so I think it's an example of how yeah. uh, power gets concentrated. And then another thing, um, just before that deal went down, Monsanto rolled out this um, this product that made um, uh, specifically soybeans resistant to this herbicide called dicamba. Um, have you guys mm. are familiar <laughs> with dicamba? I'm sure yeah. you are being in the middle of Iowa. And, um, and this, um, you know, as you guys know, this is an extremely volatile yeah. compound or a, a volatile um, mixture. And the company claimed, oh, well, we've made a low volatility formulation of it. The EPA okayed it. Um, it goes out and every year it causes massive amounts of off-target damage. Um, soybeans that aren't yep. resistant to it get hurt. Um, trees, plants, people's gardens. And it's this big disaster and, and the EPA has not called the company to account for it. It continues to let it come out. And Why do I you think, think that is? Well, we, we, we can get to that in a second. But I think that um, that I think a lot of people thought, well, this European company is maybe has more of a conscience. It's mm. you know, it's not going to do this. Um, it's going to pull back from this ridiculous product. And they just went full steam ahead. Once again, they've got lawsuits that they're they're battening back and and they're still mm -hmm. doing it and i i think they're coming up with um a, you know another product that adds a third chemical to the mix um and so it's just you know this tsunami of herbicides coming down in um yeah in the corn belt um why does the epa look the other way i mean i think that the you know the the chemical industry just has a huge amount of power mm -hmm. and has been yeah. able to push the epa around for decades and decades um, you've got stuff like um, atrazine. The, the case against atrazine is pretty strong um, that at least it causes ecological problems. It may also be at levels in water where it's ca causing people pro people problem. I, I, th I think that's more uh, still sort of disputed. And I think there's you know legitimate gray area there. But I think it's pretty clear that it's causing problems for animals and um, and you know, EPA advisory panels have suggested that the EPA ban it and it just keeps not doing it. Um, that product is put out by Syngenta, which is now owned by ChemChina. Um, is that, mm -hmm. It doesn't even matter um, whether it's a US owned company. It's just our EPA just doesn't do a very good job of regulating chemicals. Uh, I yeah. think it's very fair to say. We could, we could have a whole podcast episode about various yeah. chemicals that probably shouldn't be on the market yeah yeah but the the thing my view on chemicals is is similar to abusing natural resources chemicals are a shortcut most often and shortcuts always have a price sometimes the price is worth paying sometimes sometimes it's worth paying but but there's always a price. So we need to look at what is the price of these chemicals and is it worth paying? But we, yeah, we, we don't have to hang out there forever. I know. My goodness. And, and <laughs> another one is antibiotics. Another analogy is antibiotics. Like we know, yeah. like, I know that if I get in, if I, you know, finish this podcast off and get into my car and get into a terrible car accident, I'm going to be really glad that antibiotics were developed and mm -hmm. are available in hospitals. So they can stop me if I have a car accident from getting a really bad infection. Um, mm -hmm. there's all sorts of uses for antibiotics that they're this precious resource. Um, and we know that in like human medicine, that for decades and decades, you know, if you bring a kid into a, a pediatrician with an earache, 
they're going to, yeah. you know, for decades, they would prescribe uh, antibiotics, knowing that, it, but we now, now know that it's a virus that causes most of these uh, earaches and antibiotics don't treat viruses. So the kid is using them, you're developing resistance, you're helping develop mm. resistance. Um, antibiotics aren't very good for you. So you, you know, what you're saying is exactly right. It's a shortcut. You have to ask if it's worth it. Well, it's not worth it if it's not going to help you. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the, the use in animals is an, an, another example, just sort of the abuse of antibiotics as this way to make animals grow faster. Um, I think we've learned was a shortcut that wasn't worth it. Um, so I think we should see stuff like herbicides as like antibiotics as this thing that we're glad that we have and, you know, break in case of emergency, but don't rely on it, um, mm -hmm. I, I, I mm -hmm. think is a really good way of thinking about it. Man. Yeah, that is that is really good talk. <laughs> man, man, why am I even interviewing you? Maybe you should just have a pedestal and go to a TED talk. <laughs> oh man! So so with with big ag, here, here's a question: how how big is too big? Because it, it's not. We cannot live in a world we live in today if everyone had to be self sustaining on food. Now we had a podcast guest once that said everyone should be required to have a garden for a period of their life just so they. Or as like part of their education, like a high school education, you like required to do a garden. So I understand that, but like, so there has to be some sort of farms. I mean, civilization was built on being able to produce more than you consume. Sure. Um, but when when does it get too big, right? Because right now I'm hearing small farm about twelve hundred acres, small farm here in Iowa. <laughs> yeah, we get that pretty often, Tom. <laughs> yeah, that is a small farm in Iowa, sure. Yeah. So yeah, when, when do you start? And I know it's hard. You can't draw like a black and white line. But do you have any thoughts as to that? Well, I think um, so. You know, I guess what you're really asking me is about scale. Like, what what is the right scale for farming? Yeah. And I think yeah. um, first of all, you know, I guess I would think about it in terms of diversity. In that, um, it makes sense to have a diversity of scales. It makes sense to have um, you know, I probably think that 1,200 acres, even in Iowa, should be considered a large farm. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, We're probably it, with you. Def it definitely makes sense for, uh, for farms in Iowa, for us to have farms in Iowa that are 1,200, 1,500, 2,000 acres, um, because there are, you know, the, the kinds of stuff that you can grow there, like grains, make sense at that scale. They yeah. also can make sense at smaller scales, but but they but they definitely make make sense at that scale. Um, and I think that in a in a perfect world, you would have um, a mixture of some larger farms that grow stuff like grains, or let's say you know maybe a, even in a mixed system grazing mixing um, animals and crops. I, I think you know stuff like growing, um, you know, sort of raising cattle in conjunction with corn and, and soybeans and other crops is a great idea. It, uh, it actually works really well ecologically. And I think you need a certain amount of acres to do that. And then I think you, um, you want to have, um, and, and those are farms that are sort of distributing into kind of a, a, a bigger market um, for, for grains. And I think we should get away from corn and soybeans, but I think they should be part of it. Um, and then I think you want to have mid-sized farms that focus on um, 
like that are more focused on a region, like let's say the Corn Belt, um, a mid-sized farm, let's say 500 acres, and it's got some it's got some dairy cattle that it's you know rotating with some let's say some corn and soybeans it's got some vegetables it's got some orchards and it's mm. um it's selling into retail networks in in the corn belt so some of it's going to grocery stores in des moines some of it's going to grocery stores in, in chicago um and it's sort of this regional um and you know it you guys can grow a lot of fruits and vegetables through the summer um there's really good season extension technology that's not really high input you know stuff like greenhouses there, there's a great farmer in um maine and elliot coleman who should get on sometime um and uh he's a master at growing um you know vegetables in northern climates like up in maine and what he told me once that made a lot of sense is every time you put a cover over um over a row of fruits and vegetables just a simple plastic cover or whatever it doesn't even have to be plastic you're essentially going a thousand miles south in terms of um mm. like mm. what what season you're in so you want to wow. go two thousand miles south you put two covers you want to go three thousand miles south you put three covers um and you know that's you know it's trickier than it sounds but you, you can do season extension like that um yeah at um at at a pretty you know without burning a lot of fossil fuels to to heat it up um and so you have you have mid-sized farms that do that and so when i go into a, a grocery store in chicago or D des moines i'm i'm getting high quality product from that area reflecting the seasons of that area um i think that would be great then you have um another um you know you you, you go one size smaller and that would be farms clustered around a des moines or Chicago hmm. um, and they're selling into you know farmers markets of uh, specialty stores restaurants um, you know maybe schools with you know relationships where this school comes out and visits the farm and the kids get to see the farm um, and uh, and a uh, foods you know if we had policies that instead so our policies for decades and decades since before you guys were born have been about you know basically scaling farms up you know right. get bigger yep. get out yeah has been has been the dominant force of policy but if we had a lot more policy weight around instead of get bigger get out let's let's support a, a multiplicity of scales of you know that have different uses in our food system um and that would be a much more regionalized food system so in my book um perilous bounty i talk about how California, we rely so much on California for fruits and vegetables mm -hmm. that in a place like Des Moines or Chicago, in the middle of the summer, you're you go into your Whole Foods or your Hy-Vee. Is that the um, the chain? Mm -hmm. that's yeah, right. that's nice. We, go. we, we yes. love Hy-Vee. I can do local color. Uh, I spent <laughs> I spent a long time I spent a long time in in Iowa, in Iowa for my book and just reporting over the years. Yeah. But, Did you um, ever visit a fairway? Fairways, New York, isn't it? No, it's well. Maybe they there's a similar. But there's yeah, a chain in Iowa called Fairway, and they have a 300 mile limit on how far out they'll get meat. Wow. No, yeah, I, I'm not familiar with Fairway. That's um, that, they're pretty that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, but yeah, um, but yeah. So I, you know, I think that like, I think we are gonna face trouble because California has all of these problems with droughts and floods. Mm -hmm. uh, re read my book to find out more about that. 
um, but um, but having a system where you know different regions produce a bunch of a bunch more of the food than that that's that's currently um, grown now uh, would be really really re resilient. And one more thing to say, so um, because of the farmers market movement of the past twenty five years, we've actually done pretty good. We're not you know not perfect but we've done okay at reviving the kind of small farms that can sell into farmers markets yes. so mm. i'm sure the des moines farmers market is amazing i know that one yeah. in chicago are um and we've also done obviously really good at the giant scale you know five and ten thousand acre farms that produce all this corn and soybeans but the real gap is in the mid-sized farm mid-sized mm. farms are um, essentially too big to directly sell to consumers to things like farmers markets and they're so they're too small to do well in commodity markets because of the economy mm -hmm. of scales of the bigger guys can just yeah. crush them on price and so they're the ones withering away and they're the ones that we would need to have this more robust regionalized food system that i'm talking about so we need wow. policies that really focus on uh on the mid-sized farm and um there is a thing that big ag interests have essentially crushed in Iowa at Iowa State called the Leopold Center for Sustainable Agriculture. Uh, it barely exists anymore. Um, the, the, they basically pulled the plug on it. Uh, but it was a great center at Iowa State. It was sort of like my center. Um, like it's it, it's that center was in the ag school at Iowa State. My center is in the public health school, but it was a similar kind of thing, like a think sure. tank within the university. And there was a guy there named Fred Kirschenmann, who was a professor at Iowa State. He's an, uh, he has an organic farm in, I think, South Dakota. And he wrote a whole lot in the 2000s about the missing middle and ag in the middle and just how important it is. Hmm. And really, we have not made very much progress on that. Wow, that blew my mind because we we talk a lot about big farms and uh and we, we do say that they have their place in terms of they allow for efficient grain which is really helps with the economy and trade i, I know that and um uh but um but we, we've never really talked about yeah mid-sized farms i mean dad loves the small farm model the like 80 to 120 acres everybody's got a little bit of everything and and uh and and then you were also saying the big thing you were saying was diversity, having these yeah. mid-sized farms having having really good diversity. And actually, we we talk about that all the time on the farm, but we we never attach it to size, or at least not that I can remember. Kent, we never really attach it to like a mid-size would be good diversity well, size. I think I think you know that just like what we talked about with what constitutes a big farm. You know, uh, the those terms shift through time and and i think you know it's been easier to focus at each extreme and forget about you know it's the middle child syndrome right you mm. forget about who's in the middle there and uh, when you really consider you know i guess based on today's standards i'd probably consider that you know 200 to you know 500 acre farm is probably like a, a classic you know tail end of the quote unquote good old days of farming, that was probably a mid-sized farm, you know? Yeah. yeah. And, and it's, yeah, you're right. The, all those guys have, have, uh, are either leasing out the ground, share cropping with, you know, a, a manager who's got a conglomerate of, you know, mm -hmm. multiple other mid-sized farms so that they can be 
two can become a big time farmer, you know, yeah. or, or they've sold. I heard yeah. a really interesting take once that, um, three people, a farm, uh, should be able to, uh, provide or three families should be able to provide for, um, three, uh, families via one major, um, worker. So like three guys, like a, a dad and his two sons or something. And the argument was that if you get bigger than that, the work is no longer in the family. You start getting hired hands. And when you start getting hired hands, that's when the consolidation of power. So instead of, um, cause you're going to pay your son 65,000 a year, but you're going to pay a hired hand $40,000 a year. So what do you do with that other $25,000? You buy something from John Deere or you buy an extra 10 acres. Um, and, and so the idea was like, not that that was actually the correct number, but there should be a farm should be able to sustain a certain amount of families and then pass that it, it, it gets too big. I don't, I don't necessarily adhere to that. Um, I, I don't always like more rules, <laughs> not a big rule follower guy, but, uh, um, I like no, the outside box thinking, <laughs> thank you, kid. <laughs> thank you for that. Okay. So it, I, I, my next question was what are some good big ag alternatives, but you answered it with your, uh, middle ag when you, so I want to go to something that piqued my interest. You were saying big ag interest. What is that? Who's behind that? And I don't want to be like conspiracy theorist, but yeah. who has the big, in- the big ag interest? Well, I mean, I think, um, I think there's a couple of different nodes, let's say nodes of power in, you know, what we can sort of broadly group as big ag. One of them, well, let's say three. Okay, so one of them would be the input suppliers. These mm-hmm. are the companies that are supplying seeds, chemicals, fertilizer, um, you know, pesticides. I guess all that can go under chemicals. Mm-hmm. But so, so these companies, like I know you guys are associated with a, a seed selling firm, but it's not, um, you don't have, you know, part of this, you know, giant market share that, you know, that the, you know, not even speaking of corn and soybeans, but just seeds in general, you know, mm-hmm. basically four companies have a huge share of it. I think it probably approaches 70%. Um, and most of their profits come from selling seeds that are, you know, patent protected in some way and are throwing off like a technology fee, like GMO traits and things like that. Um, and we know that those GMO traits are, you know, mostly herbicide tolerance there's also the the pesticide trait um but and they're also the seed companies and the chemical companies are the same companies it's bear monsanto it's bear um bear syngenta corteva and basf Uh, they're all gigantic seed companies and all gigantic pesticide companies and so they represent an interest in you know basically let's keep the corn belt in corn and soybeans Let's keep it, you know, it, you know, let's keep it focused on chemicals as the solution. You've got a weed problem. Well, we'll just, there's a resistance problem to glyphosate. We'll just add dicamba to the mix. Now you've got dicamba, mm-hmm. uh, dicamba resistance. We'll throw in 2,4-D or some other chemical and we'll just keep you on this treadmill. So that's one of the big interests. The second big interest is um, the buyers. This is... Um, the, the meat companies that buy the corn and soybeans and feed them to animals, 
um, the grain traders. Um, so Archer like Dennis, Cargill? Archer Dennis Midland, Cargill, um, Bunge. Um, and both, all of those markets are highly consolidated. You know, Tyson and, you know, a couple of other companies, you know, Smithfield and Hogs, um, JBS and all three species, Tyson, all three species, they have incredible market share, um, dominant market share um, in in meat. Um, ADM, Cargill and Bung probably have, you know, essentially the entire market in grain trading between the three of them. Um, so they're another interest. Um, their interest, generally speaking, is aligned with the input suppliers. Let's just keep churning this stuff out at high levels. Mm -hmm. um, we can turn cheap corn into uh, profitable meat. We can turn it into ethanol at a profitable uh, rate. We can turn it into um, you know cheap soybeans, into biofuels, into you know biodiesel, um, and so those that two sets of companies generally speaking are pretty aligned on let's maximize production of corn and soybeans and not think too much about water or air pollution and things like that um then the third one is one that is just coming into focus for me and that is the landowners in the midwest some of many of whom are farmers a lot of them lease their land and um and i've been thinking a lot about them because in the course of the 20th century, they, um, you know, essentially there was this massive shakeout starting in the, let's say the 1930s, where um, the number of farms, uh, you know, went down precipitously, you know, just like really, really fast oh, yeah. Yeah. For, for decades and farms got bigger and bigger and bigger. And, um, and, you know, basically what was driving that was that you, if you wanted to keep up, you had to invest in bigger and bigger machines, more and more expensive yeah. seeds, more and more expensive fertilizers and pesticides. And if you didn't have the, um, you know, if you didn't have the sort of stomach for that, then you just exited the business and someone else bought your farm and they got bigger and bigger. And now what we have um, after these decades, you know, many, many decades of shakeout, the people that are left holding the land are sitting on massive wealth like the price of farmland as you guys well know in iowa has yeah. been going up more or less nonstop for like 30 years mm, and so yeah. if you're a, if you're a landowner in iowa even though you're you know corn and soybeans aren't very profitable like you turn all this stuff out um and you know everyone else is doing the same thing so the price isn't very good and you're paying all this money for inputs and so your profit margins aren't very good. You're sitting on this paper wealth in terms of your land mm -hmm. that you can then leverage into getting a loan to buy a bigger tractor to, you know, buy out your neighbor who's, you know, yeah, maybe kids don't want to farm it anymore. Don't want to deal with renting it out. Yeah. Um, and so you, but they're sitting on massive paper wealth. And what it makes me think of is um, I'm a basketball fan. Are, are you guys at all yeah. sports fans? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'm an, I'm an NBA fan. And one thing that we've learned over the past 20 years is owning an NBA franchise doesn't necessarily throw off a lot of income. You know, you've got to give half your money to the play, half your income to the players that, that comes in. Um, and, and, you know, ever escalating salaries, um, you know, competition with other sports, et cetera. But just holding on to that team, you know, if you bought it for 500 million in um, 1995, you're probably going to sell it. It's probably worth 5 billion this year. So you've yeah. got this massive paper 
a gain um, that you can then leverage and get mm -hmm. loans off of. And it, it seems to me like farmland in Iowa and other parts of the Corn Belt has, has gotten somewhat like that, where it doesn't yeah. throw off a whole lot of income, but um, you're sitting on a massive paper gain. And so that's a, a, a third, um, you know, uh, sort of node in this uh, hmm. in this sort of power matrix here, and I think that like in a lot of ways, I think we, you know we can see instances where their interests diverge, but generally speaking, the system is working pretty well for them. The input yeah. suppliers are making lots of profit selling the inputs. The buyers are making a lot of profit by taking corn and soybeans, turning into meat and and fuel, and the landowners are seeing their their land go up even if uh farming isn't always so great yeah and so they're all kind of you know in on this system that i think is um you guys got to read my book because yeah um, yeah it was the the second section of my book is about iowa and the way that its soil is being eroded dramatically oh by yeah. this system oh um, man yeah just, just uh really really harshly eroded by the system and it's driving it to the hilt. Um, and so yep. when I yeah. talk about big ag, those are the three nodes that I think of. And it's funny because until pretty recently, in fact, this book I, I finished writing it in 2019, I was really just thinking about the first two. I was thinking of farmers in, in the Corn Belt that's kind of like on the other side of this because um, they are squeezed between the buyer, the input yeah. suppliers and the, and the buyers. But now, you know, work I've done since then and thinking I've done since then, which goes back to Nicholas, your thesis about how we always yeah. have to keep thinking and, and you know, we, we can never stop learning. I have started to see the sort of, I see them more as landowners now as a class because so many of the landowners are renting their farms at, as you guys well know. I think 40% oh, yeah. Yeah. of yeah. Uh, by acres, something like 40% of land in Iowa is rented out. But they're sitting on this, um, this massive wealth and if you're a young person who wants to get into farming, well, you, maybe you want to become one of these mid-sized farms, or maybe you want to become yeah. one of these small farms and get like 30 acres outside of Des Moines and sell into the farmer's market. Um, land has gotten really, really expensive and it's going to be really, really hard to, um, yeah. to break in. It's, I've seen it happen twice and I'm, I know a lot of people <laughs> in the area, two people break into farming and one of them He's 45. He's basically, in, he knowingly, I've talked to him about this, has enslaved his life to pay for land and equipment so that his kids could farm before he yeah. knew if they wanted to or not. Is he about your age or how old is he? No, there's, there's the other one is my age, but the uh, the one I was he's just saying, he's, he's 45. Yep, yep. Yeah. But um, something I, I wanted to add, I wanted to see what you think of my thought here. I would add two more categories to those um, behemoths. And now the the like borderline monopolies that you were talking about, those are like top 20 biggest companies in the world. So these aren't quite as big, but I'd say there might be two more. One has been on the rise recently. I mean, in the last 30 years or so, farm insurance. Mm -hmm. It's become a huge, I mean, they can really just suck money point. off of. Yeah, and then the, the other one is machinery. Oh yeah. Yes. Um, and and so I, I would maybe argue that that both of those and, and I talked to a farmer the other day, it was a year ago. Corn was seven dollars, you know, it's some of the highest it's ever been, record breaking. Yeah. Yeah. He came in, he was putting in like forty five acres here, twenty five, forty five, one of those two. He was putting a chunk of land in a CRP and I was like, What are you doing this for? And he was 
you know, he was maybe 50. He wasn't, he was definitely, you know, young enough to keep farming. And he said, Oh, I've, I've come to know these past years that when the, when the price goes up, the margins stay the same. Those big companies, they know exactly, he said, they know exactly how much to charge you. Um, and I've read an article that said similar, they know exactly how much to charge farmers before they go bankrupt. They need farmers to stay in business, yeah. but they, they know. And, and now I don't want to, I'm not saying like all these companies are out maliciously trying, they're just trying to make money like most of yeah. the people here. And, and yeah. I wanted to read this thing by Chris Jones that I really liked in his book. Most Iowa farmers are conducting their business as any rational person would do under the circumstances. They're operating with a system that most of them had no part in creating and feel powerless to change. Um, and then he says, although I think it's fair to expect certain things from farmers, I also think it's unfair to expect them to solve this. So we got a, we, we got like a problem that goes all the way down to the health of us and our children. Um, has a lot of different causes. A big cause, maybe the biggest cause with the biggest money behind it is is the interests in agriculture that, and their interest is to make more money. I don't think they're trying to hurt people. I just think they're trying to make more money and they're not super always worried about um, what happens if they do get to make more money. What, what does it take to change something like that? Yeah, I love that that sentence from Chris. And I so I am very much in sympathy with farmers. I do think that it's true that they're farming in a system that they didn't create. And I think that it is extremely stressful to maintain a farm under this um those situations. And that um that statement from your friend is um, you know, the the farmer who put some some acreage into CRP when the um the price of corn was at an all-time high. I mean, that's his exact his analysis is exactly right. That um that you know, there's a lot of research on this that you know, input prices creep up with corn with corn and soybean prices, and they're a lot stickier on the way down. Mm -hmm. So when yeah. you know, yeah, they they you know, what do they call it? A um Something like a there, there's a, a term in economics about it, um, about how something goes up really easily but goes down really slowly. Oh um, yeah, and um and and that's the situation the farmers are dealing in. And um, I, you know, I don't want to sound too cavalier. Like I think people are really stressed out, and it isn't always really comforting to know. Well, like you know, I had a really shitty year because margins were so tight but my land went up 20 percent. i don't see that money unless i go to a bank and go mm -hmm. get all the trouble to you know leverage it somehow um and i but i think it it is it, very much a systemic issue and i thought it was great that you mentioned farm insurance and a lot of farm insurance is sold by the farm bureau not not all of it but they're a real big player in um yep. in, yeah. in farm insurance and I think they are this nexus of, you know, they call themselves the voice of agriculture <laughs> and they really are the main farm lobby in Washington. Really? And they are lobby. Oh yeah. They are, um, they are the big farm lobby in Washington. They're really, really powerful and entrenched in Washington and they represent themselves as we're the voice of farmers but they're really the, the voice of these companies. They're the voice mm -hmm. of, you know, very well said that machine, you know, John Deere and it's very few competitors um, are definitely locked into the system. And yeah. they definitely have like, 
you know, the price of a combine has gone up way higher than inflation and they're just putting all these features on them. And, yeah. and then it's almost like, well, I've got to, to get the, have the latest combine and fully use it. I need to have 10,000 acres. So now I got to go buy 3000 more acres so I can make, make full use of this combine yeah. um, and, and, and stuff like that. And, um, but I, I think that like where I could get, cause I obviously thought a lot about this from a book and where I came down is that it's really going to take, to change this system, it's going to take social movements. And the, yes, reason why I, yeah. Tom. The, the, yes. the reason why I say that is that like these companies, they um, they're they're smart and they in, they make all these profits. The input companies, the buyers, the machine companies, the insurance companies, they they make this money and they invest a portion of that money. They you know hold a portion back and invest it in lobbying and campaign finance. And they pump that money into the system and they're a big lobby yeah. in washington they're a big lobby at, at the state capitol in iowa and other farm states uh, california is another great example of that but just any farm state you can mention um yeah. big ag is got a big voice in in the capital they've done a masterful job of disguising reality with traditional farming um they yeah they talk about this reality of kids still going out to gather eggs before they get on the school bus and right after they got done milking the cow and and uh you know the the farmer's been at it all day long working his hands to the bone and you know all during the super bowl they ran illinois farm bureau ran a commercial 96 percent of farms are still owned by families what yeah. the heck does that even mean <laughs> yeah, you know, like, everyone's part of a family <laughs> yeah, yeah right right you know so and so they to tom's point they are winning the social game because then we all sit here and we we think of the you know the paul harvey god made a farmer and we think that that 1940s model of agriculture is still existing and in reality it's it's extinct it's it's yeah. been it's been gone for decades yeah but yet everyone when they drive by row after row of of uh sterile cornfields they still get the warm fuzzy norman rockwell feeling that uh all's well in america because the american farmer is well and exactly. and they and, and it hides you know it, it stays yeah. hidden and and the problem persists man very well said so yeah, so I think, but I think we have to figure out how to bust that political power. And also, you're talking absolutely. about cultural power. And you know, one of the things that I've been thinking about recently is that if you're a politician and you're going to Iowa, um, you know, let's say it's primary time or caucus time, then you know what people think. You know, that sort of knee-jerk reaction is, well, I'm going to Iowa, so I got to say something nice about ethanol and promise to keep ethanol yeah, going. Yeah. And I've got to, you know, talk about this myth of the family farmer and I got to like go out and get some hay bales around me and maybe have a hay seed coming out of my mouth. <laughs> I talk and, you know, talk real plain spoken and um, and just play that whole shtick up. But what people don't understand is that um, Iowa itself, our most farm heavy state, has very few farmers. Like how yep. many like. What, yep. percent, what, what percentage of the working population in Iowa is uh, occupied as a farmer or farm laborer? It's very small. Shockingly low. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and then um, if you look at something like ethanol, these ethanol plants are like, they're basically breweries 
without having a bottle, without having to have a place for you to come and have a beer at the brewery and have to ha hire bartenders. Mm -hmm. There are mega breweries that, you know, they bring in corn on one end and they send out ethanol and distillers grains on the other, and they're not very labor intensive. And mm -hmm. there's this great economist at, um, he's now retired at Iowa State named Dave Swenson, who has completely put the lie. You guys should get him on if you can. What's yeah. what Dave Swenson? Dave Swenson, if you look him up, he's on Twitter and um, he says he's retired and he's done talking about this stuff, but you can always get him talking about it. But he's done these <laughs> economics, he's done these economic studies about how ethanol has very little to the Iowa economy because it's just not very labor intensive. And so there's no real reason to to come to Iowa and do that because you're talking to a vanishingly tiny amount of people. And um, and one of my favorite examples is the 2020 election in the Iowa caucuses, the Democrats all, you know, showed up in Iowa, they campaigned, they campaigned. And um, um, Joe Biden had a very conventional ag policy. He had Tom Vilsack as his main advisor. He praised ethanol. He, he did all the stuff you're supposed to do. He, you know, chewed on a hay stock and, you know, you know, was very plain spoken and all that stuff. Um, and Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren came to Iowa and they had really progressive farm policies. They didn't praise ethanol. They, they talked about, um, you know, pollution from hog farms and getting away from that system. They did, they broke every rule and they came in second and third Bernie essentially tied with Mayor Pete. Um, and if you look at their combined number of votes, it was something like four times what Joe Biden got. And then mm. in the general election mm. with Tom Vilsack running his campaign, he got, he got, you know, stomped by 10 points by Trump. And, and so that message did not resonate. And I think Democrats, I think just politicians in general have to stop pretending that it's this big, um, it is a big farm state, but there aren't that many farmers. Yeah, right. And talking about issues that people care about, um, this assumption that ethanol, that the average Iowan gives a damn about ethanol is, um, is just wrong. Um, and, uh, you know, some people might have that ideology in their heads, but then this pipeline situation has really put the lie to that. Like how many people, how many, you know, conservative farmers want this pipeline, this ethanol um you know, CO2 pipeline coming through the farm. Very few, it turns out. And they're not yep. buying this argument that it's like the sort of engine of the Iowa economy. So I think that yeah. just like breaking some of these myths is going to be real important. Yeah, Ooh. I 100% I agree with you, Tom. That was, that was very well said. Yeah. Breaking the myths. That's what we, well, I don't know. We break myths, give truth. But I mean, it all starts with some people's minds. You know what I mean? It all yeah, starts yeah. in your mind. You got to get the masses you got well, it you know yeah you, you described what has happened we used to be a state made up of communities that were that were built on farmers and now we're built on farming yeah and, and it's just that slight that slight little change in the suffix of that word that has totally transformed our state and in in many ways not for yeah. the better yeah i mean if you go to if you go to like Casey's, which is the uh, the general gas station, I think most common in Iowa. Um, the high they have a little, gas stations. Yeah, basically. <laughs> they, they got a little sticker on their thing that says um, like super unleaded cleaner for Iowa air, you know, because it's higher 
ethanol and they're they're trying to push I think, it but i think that's every i think that's most gas stations have that little decal in in iowa does um because the alternative to having a lot of ethanol is is burning a lot more oil right so that's no i disagree with that but i i don't know so i'm i'm asking you would know a lot more than me well so a couple things um there's a lot of good research about how so first of all about 10% of the liquid fuel supply is now ethanol right so mm -hmm. you think um off the top well that means that we're offsetting 10% of um of oil with ethanol and ethanol is only two thirds is um has got two thirds of the energy of, of gasoline. Oh yeah. And so now you're really down to like six and a half percent, not ten percent. And mm -hmm. um there's really good research about how um by burning less oil and replacing it with ethanol, that drops the price of oil down a little bit. Um and it sort of like puts downward pressure on the oil price. And when the oil price goes down, people drive more. And and so you so you're not they're, really they're getting much of a gain, um, but Man. there is something else going on as we speak, and that is that there's this push to switch from internal combustion cars to electric vehicles. Yeah, yeah. And um, and so, you know, there's a really strong argument that I agree with that putting resources behind the EV transition. Um, makes a lot more sense ecologically than putting resources mm -hmm. behind keeping ethanol going. Yeah. 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 And so, and basically because ethanol is really just an additive to fuel, it, it's, you know, you can't, our engines aren't designed to burn ethanol. They're designed to burn gasoline. So we can replace a certain percentage of it with ethanol, but only so much. Um, mm. What you're doing is you're sort of um, keeping the fossil fuel energy system in place. Um, when do you do stuff like, you know, put in these pipelines that are going to, um, you know, basically those pipelines, if they work, if they, you know, if they happen, if they get over all the opposition and they ram those down landowners throats in Iowa, they're going to cost us taxpayers billions of dollars. Mm. And that's the mm. whole business model of them is, you know, this 45 Q tax credit, um, that got jacked up in the inflation reduction act. That's going to cost billions of dollars from taxpayers. Um, that's literally going straight from, you know, you know, straight from the federal government to Rastetter and his friends and, and the other companies, ADM, that are doing them. Um, when you could be taking those billions of dollars and putting them into the EV transition by whatever you want to do, tax breaks for you buying EVs, by, by putting in EV uh, charging stations. And, um, and the thing about it is that, uh, um, you know, an EV car is a lot greener than a car, internal combustion car going on 10% ethanol. Yeah. My goodness. I, yeah. uh, you notice that the politicians, they come to Iowa, they don't really want to talk about, they don't want to talk about electric vehicles, but then, but then the greater United States likes to talk about electric vehicles. So they have to, and then, yeah. I, yeah, I don't know. I think my grandpa would disown me if my next new vehicle wasn't an EV. So he, he's just, he <laughs> loves them so much. But uh, we, man, Tom, thanks so much for joining. We we would love to have you again sometime. You're a wealth of knowledge. Well, great. You guys ask great questions. Um, huh. It's a pleasure to be on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. we've got just one more for you. And I didn't put this on the thing on purpose. And I'm really sorry. I wanted to blindside you with it. 
uh, if you could snap your fingers, change one thing in this world, what would it be? I know it's like the hardest question possible, and I wow. gave you no time to think about it. Wow. One thing. And then, then there's like the whole unintended consequences. Yep, so you yep. yeah. <laughs> letting the genie out of the bottle kind of a deal. Yeah. Um, yep. So, um, oh, man. Um, what would that one thing be? So is this something you ask every guest? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, usually, um, yeah. Yeah, I think I would. And it could be like going back in history or just. Yeah, it, anything. Yeah, sure. it, usually it's field related, but like the yeah. the, the homesteader, she a... said, make everyone have a garden. Uh, right, 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 one. right. And I like that idea. And I think it's, you know, that idea, if you if you push it out to, well, if you don't have access to a yard, then there should be a garden in the school or a community mm-hmm. garden. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like everyone should have access to a garden. Yeah. Um, okay, yeah. Let me keep it to my field. Um, okay, I'll I'll drop one on you guys. Um, that's very specific to Iowa, and it's very pertinent to the conversation. Okay, if you want to get subsidized crop insurance, if you're a corn and soybean farmer, yeah, and this is something you've come to expect. It's something. It's your birthright now. Subsidized crop insurance. <laughs> um, if you want it, then you have to submit your plan to me, the director of the secretary of agriculture, Tom Philpott. Uh, I'm sneaking that in there. Um, or no, it doesn't. It doesn't have to be. It could be just someone who someone who knows their stuff. You got to submit your plan for um, keeping, let's say, eighty percent of your ground covered all year, and this could be through cover crops. It could be through. Yeah winter rye um it could be through um you know any number of ways i'm gonna do i'm gonna plant prairie i'm gonna plant native prairie seeds and run cattle over it or Mm -hmm. or whatever but i want to see your plan to um to keep 80 percent of your ground covered every year and if if you can show me that and and convincingly and i am gonna we're gonna send the guy out to check uh that you're doing it then you get to have subsidized crop insurance and that I think that would solve one. it would solve so many problems of soil erosion, of water pollution, um, Gulf of Mexico issues. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Oh, so I guess yep, that that's a one good thing. one. Hey, thank you for narrowing me back down because I was I was going galaxy brain, you guys. And... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know. I I bring the dinosaurs back or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I would I would stop that meteor from hitting the Earth that took out the dinosaurs. Yeah, I'm pretty. Yeah. I feel like we would not be here if that meteor. Yeah, it's not a <laughs> we oh, might man. be like giant talking dinosaurs, but that would yeah. be so. I am confident people are going to love what you had to share so that everyone loves what you had to share. They want to get more of you. Where do they, where do they do that? What do they, you have a book? Yeah, I have a book. It's called perilous bounty. I know we're not um, showing the screen, but, but there it is. Um, And you can find it anywhere you get books. Um, I did a signing at Prairie lights bookstore in Iowa city. So I bet they have, but they Mm -hmm. have it in the, um, in the bookstore there, but you know, anywhere you get books online, Bookshop, bookshop.org is where I recommend. It supports small bookstores. Um, you can yeah. find me at Twitter. Um, I'm not calling it X. Um, still Twitter to me. And as long as it exists, as long as, you know, for the, at least for the next month or two, I'll be on it. Yeah. I'm at Tom Philpot on Twitter. 
And you can look up my archive of articles on Mother Jones. You can Google my name and Mother Jones. You can find my mm -hmm. whole archive of articles. Um, they are really still, good, people. And they I still are freelance really for them. I still freelance for Mother Jones. Awesome. awesome. And check out and Google Center for a Little Future, and you'll find our our um, our website. Yeah, a really see some of the stuff we're up to. Really cool spot. So, it, man, people, we we talked about some really cool, some really lofty things, some real some ideals, um, and it's probably worth bookmarking this episode. I've never said this before. It's probably worth bookmarking this episode and, and going back from time to time. But remember that we live in a systematic world and that's okay. We just need to make sure that the systems are working for us, not against us. And, and, um, you can, you can help change that. One big thing you can do is pay attention where you spend your dollar. I said this on the last podcast, pay attention where you spend the dollar. Second, and I know this sounds like I'm self-marketing, but we believe in this. You can share this podcast. The way that that helps is because when people hear these podcasts, their minds start to change on these topics. They start to have the broadened horizons. They start to realize, oh, my meat actually is affecting my life. You know, those kinds of things. So share the podcast um, because we really believe that conservation and world system health and uh, people's lives are changed one mind at a time.